are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. All right, go ahead, grab your seats and grab your Bibles. Go ahead to Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be again this morning. Acts chapter 1. And I want to give you, I want to give you a phrase to hold on to, very familiar phrase, on your mark, get set, and nope, just stop right there. This, this is what I want you to hold on to today. On your mark, get set, and I'm going to leave it on purpose. And I know that's driving some of you crazy. It's kind of like if you, like there's something in our wiring as human beings, the way that God designed us, that we want closure, right? Like we don't, we don't love getting caught in that middle place. If I were to sing a song or, or hum like, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I won, and just stop it right there. Some of you are like, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. You're like, la, 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 I gotta, I gotta finish it in my head, right? And you, but, we, but I wanna leave you right there on purpose, right in the middle, because the passage that we're gonna look at in Acts chapter one is exactly, it's, it's this passage that's beautifully caught in this tension. On your mark, get set. Before, and I'll say the word, before go comes on your mark, get set. Now, if you're joining us for the first time today, we're studying our way through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter one. It's, by the way, that's on page 909 in the, in the Bibles in front of you if you don't have a copy of God's word. We'd love to have your, word, your eyes in scripture this morning. Luke, the author, has set out to explain to this man, Theophilus, why and how Christianity has become this unstoppable force, right? Why and how the gospel is this explosive power that continues to this very day. A lot of Romans were, were joyfully embracing it. Some Romans were resisting it and even trying to squash it. And the gospel, the nature of the gospel, the more you resist it, the more you try to kill it, the purer it gets and the healthier it gets. And Luke was setting out to write to Theophilus and explain why. Like this thing is, it's unstoppable, it's beautiful, I want you to understand it so that, and he says in, in Luke chapter one, he tells the office, so that you may know and believe, right? So that, you're, that you can fully understand what it is that you're seeing, what's at play here. And the beginning of that explosion, really like the, the, the beginning of that outward motion and that explosion starts in chapter two, what we're gonna see next week. In fact, if you look at the headings in your Bible, in my Bible, the, the heading above chapter one says, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Right, so there's this trajectory that's laid out. And then in the, the heading above chapter two says, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Right, where the Spirit comes down, the word goes out, lost souls are brought in. It's awesome, right? That's the, that's the go part of the story. But before go comes, on your mark, get set. And that's, I think, the power of the passage that we're looking at today. So think of a runner, right? Picture a runner. When you hear those terms as a runner, you hear, when you hear on your mark, it means get in your lane. Get on your mark, right? Get to the place where you're supposed to be and then get set, meaning get, get, your, get in that running position. Get your body, get your being ready to spring, right? Right? ready for action. 
And that's what's at the heart of this passage. On your mark, get set. So, to be honest, before this week, this passage seems to me like a bit of like a, like a quick Passover. Important historical information, yes, but like a, not a lot of crucial substance for us. And so I would, I would read it, I would enjoy it, but I, I didn't, like personally, I didn't honestly like slow down and try to mine it until, until having to <laughs> this past week for uh, our time this morning. And I mean, you know, it's, we just saw our Savior ascended into heaven and the, the glory of that moment and the, the Shekinah glory of God all around him, this promise that he's gonna be returning, this promise that he's gonna be sending the Holy Spirit, and there's this great anticipation, right? You'd think that they could just, you could just skip from, what, what would it be, like verse 13, skip right to chapter two, or verse, verse 14, end of verse 14, just skip right to chapter two. But what we see when we slow down in this passage, I think there's, a, there's something really beautiful for us here. I want you to see and appreciate what it says about God and what it says about you and me when we are in these seasons, especially when we are in these seasons of on your mark, get set. Sometimes there are things that must first be in place. You and I must first be in place. Like we want, it, we want to be a part of something spectacular. We want to be used by God. We want, as a church and as disciples, as a, as a community of faith, we want to be on mission with Jesus, right? We want to go. We're eager to go. On your mark, first, on your mark, get set. I would even say this is a, absolutely appropriate for us today because we as a church are in, right now, we are in a season of what's next, for us. We're, we're in a season of transition. We're in a season of on your mark, get set. How do we take advantage of this time in a way that is most fruitful for our own hearts and most helpful for the mission ahead in order to glorify God, in order to make much of him, in order to take advantage of the time that we have available to us? So let's read and study this passage together. Because it's a longer passage, I'm going to just walk through it and kind of comment on the verses along the way instead of reading it all at once and then and I'm breaking it up. So first section, we're calling on your mark. Let's look at Acts chapter one, starting with verse 12. Acts chapter one, starting with verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And Luke, Luke 24, let me just say this, Luke 24, 52 says, they returned with great joy, right? There was no, this is not, like they weren't pouting, they weren't scared, they, weren't, they were amped. They returned with great joy. They were eager about what was coming. The Mount of Olives is a pretty significant place for, for us as, as Christ followers. It's a beautiful grove for one. I mean, it was, it was Jesus' favorite park. Like he was his favorite spot to look at Jerusalem. The sun would set behind Jerusalem, over Jerusalem while you, while you would, would look on from the Mount of Olives in the east. Um, he preached there a lot. He taught there. He, the, the, he would go with the disciples to sing hymns there together. They camped there at night a lot of times. So when he was doing ministry in Jerusalem, they would go camping in the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives. And then and he would watch the sunrise hitting Jerusalem. He would be praying over Jerusalem multiple times. We've got prayers captured where Jesus is praying over Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. He loved this spot. And 
The Bible says when he returns, that is where he's going to touch down. Zechariah 14.4 says, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. So that's where they're coming from. It's about two-thirds of a mile away from center city or, or city proper Jerusalem. So where did they go? Verse 13. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. We don't, we don't know exactly where this was. It's interesting to note, though, that the original language actually says the upper room. So it leads me to think, I think it leads a lot of people to think that this is probably the same place where they celebrated the Passover, not long before, right? They, the same room where Jesus prayed that beautiful high priestly prayer, the same room where he taught them about the coming Holy Spirit, the same room where he, where he modeled for them servanthood, where he took off his, his formal clothes and wrapped himself in servant's clothing and washed their feet, right? That, that very same room is probably the same room where they are right now. Now, who all is there? Verse 13. It says, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, if you're counting, I'm sure you didn't, but there's 11, there's 11 names here. So who's not there? is Judas Iscariot. There is another Judas, Judas son of James, stinks to be him, but there, the Judas Iscariot is not there. And Peter is going to address this in the very next paragraph. But who else was there? Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, I love this, this is pretty, this is pretty significant that Luke would stop and include all of these others. Usually, in, a, in, a, in ancient texts, when there's a, a new movement of something happening, they would list off the, the leaders of that movement right from the beginning. But the, and so the fact that Luke stops, he pauses, slows down, and, and includes, and, and don't forget, these, all, all these women, which he has already listed for Theophilus in the Gospel of Luke. He listed off Joanna, who was a part of King Herod's household, Susanna, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of the, uh, Mary the mother of James, Mary and Martha, all these other women that were followers of Jesus that would have been there when he says, and all, you know, like all of the women, don't forget these significant women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It's, I think it's significant that Luke includes this because it's pretty countercultural to talk about the presence of these women in a day when women were considered second class. Jesus shattered prejudice, elevated the status of women to unprecedented heights, and the disciples picked up on that, right? They didn't learn that from their culture. They learned that from their master. And Jesus treated women with the same love and respect with which he treated men. And here, Luke makes sure to, that we know this, like, they're right here, part of the, the inception of this movement, the beginning of this movement, uh, which is significant for an ancient text like this. So Mary, mother of the, the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it says, and his brothers, or the word really means siblings, brothers and sisters. Now, just the, here's a, a quick Bible study um, tip for you. Anytime Luke writes brothers, it's like 90% like of the time he actually means men and women, brothers and sisters. Just like in the Spanish language today, if you say hermanos, it means both male brothers, but it also means brothers and sisters, it means siblings. Same, same concept, some of you might say like, well then why didn't they just like, make it gender uh, appropriate and say siblings. We, want, we don't want translators to get in the 
lane of interpretation. We want the translators to translate it as accurately as possible. We as God's students of God's word, we wanna know that and understand that and say, okay, I know what they mean here. And so let the translators be as accurate as possible. So anyway, here we go. Mary had Jesus and she and Joseph went on to have a big family, right? And Mark chapter six actually lists six siblings of Jesus. James, who wrote the book of James, who ended up becoming a leader of the Jerusalem Council. Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. Uh, a guy named Joseph, Simon, and multiple sisters, at least two. So he had at least six siblings. He was one of seven kids, at least, Jesus was. Um, and I would say that the significance of this, like what a statement. If you, if you trace your mind, when you hear about Jesus's siblings, his mother and his siblings, in a way that could kind of hyperlink back to other memories that you might have as you've read through scripture, where there were moments in Jesus's ministry where, where Jesus would be teaching and people would come to him and say, Jesus, your mother and your siblings are outside looking for you. Why were they looking for him? Because they thought Jesus was crazy and they wanted to take Jesus home and give him a sippy cup and let him, like lock him up, right? They just, they thought that he had gone off his rocker, that he was, he was teaching all this stuff, claiming to be the Messiah, getting all this attention, and they thought, they were, they, they thought he was making a fool of himself, he was making a fool of their family, and they wanted to shut him up. The fact that they are here, that now that they saw him crucified, died, buried, and then brought back to life. So now, now what are they doing in Acts chapter one here? Now, now they're worshiping him, right? Now they're praying to him. First uh, Corinthians 15, seven says that Jesus appeared to James personally after he was raised from the dead. James, James wanted distance from Jesus. Jesus didn't want distance from James. So James, Jesus appears to James personally. He came to him, appeared to him. He says, here I am, bro, <laughs> right? Like this is real and it's time. And James believed, and he believed so much, so deeply, that James, his brother, not, not James the apostle that we just read about, James, his brother, ends up becoming a pastor. He ends up becoming a leader in Jerusalem. He ends up becoming the leader of the council of Jerusalem that ends up making several decisions that we're gonna be looking at later in the book of Acts. He ends up getting put on trial for his faith in Christ by the Jewish leaders of the time. And he refuses to deny his brother, his savior, his God. And as a result, they throw him off the top of the western wall in the Temple Mount and, and kill him. And we learn that, yeah, we learn that from church history. But the, and the fact that he's here in this moment, it's, it's pretty powerful. Now, what do they do? What do we do? And again, let me, this is bringing back our point, on your mark. It says, look at, look at verse, actually, get your eyes back up into the text into chapter one, verse four, for just a moment. It says, and while staying with them, this is Jesus who's talking, he, it, while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And in verse 12, we read this. And when they returned to Jerusalem from the mount, then they returned to Jerusalem 
from the mount called Olivet. So in other words, they are, they're doing exactly what they were supposed to do. They were told, hey, go and wait. And they went and they waited. And I think, that, I think the thing that we need to pause and appreciate at this point, don't ever underestimate the value of simple obedience. Don't ever underestimate the value of simple obedience. If you're at a place in your life where you're like, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do right now. I don't, I don't know where you're taking me. I feel like I'm caught in this, like, this middle space. I feel like I'm holding my breath. I don't know what to do right now. Don't, in that moment, in that season, don't underestimate the power of simple obedience. Get on your mark, right? You, get, you want to be a significant bearer of the baton in this magnificent relay that we are a part of, passing the gospel on from one generation to the next. Get on your mark. Be where you know you need to be. If I went around the room right now, like, and just went, like, person to person, and said, what is one thing that you could do to improve your relationship with the Lord right now? I would guarantee you, 90% of you would have something that you know would immediately come to mind and say, I could do this. This would be something that I could do that would be an act of obedience that would honor the Lord right now, today. Do it. Don't ever underestimate the power of simple obedience and getting your heart, getting yourself to that place where you need to be, to be on your mark. Pursue that. Jesus invites you to that today. So go and get ready. But it's also noticeable, the other, the other thing that they do here is, it, and it's, notab- it's notable, the thing that they were doing was praying, right? This is not necessarily, as a passage, this isn't a lesson on prayer. There are going to be several moments that are significant prayer moments in the book of Acts that we will get to dig into prayer and kind of the theology behind prayer in a beautiful way. But it is worth noting that all, in verse 14, it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So Luke, he's, he's highlighting this idea of, of unity and the unity that is brought through the, like that forge of prayer together. This phrase with one accord is used 11 times in the book of Acts. And I think only once else in the entire Bible. But so Luke really, he loves this. He loves this idea of unity. And he talks a lot about the, the relationship between unity and prayer together. You can't argue with people and pray with them at the same time. Right? If we want to be a church that is unified in this season, that we're, this unique season that we're in, we need to devote ourselves to prayer together. They're, they're on the same page because they have the same mission. They've got their eyes up and then it's, it's beautiful. A lot of history has been written about spiritual revival, spiritual renewal. Throughout all of history, every time there was a major movement of the Holy Spirit, it, it began with prayer. We can't force spiritual renewal. We can't force God's hand and make him like put in a coin pull the lever, we can't force the Holy Spirit to come down. But what we can do is like prepare the altar. Think of that, this marvelous picture in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18 where Elijah is up on the mountain. He could build the altar, he could prepare the sacrifice, right? But at that point, he's gotta, he's gotta wait. 
He, but he's gonna, he's gonna do everything he can to prepare for that fire to come down from heaven, for that power from heaven to come on. He's gonna do everything he can to prepare, but that's all he can do is prepare. And that's kind of, in, in a way, prayer is like that, right? Where we're, we're coming to the Lord saying, Lord, I wanna get myself in the right place. I love, I was just reading through, um, it, was, it was Psalm, where was it? Psalm chapter 116, where David is praying this beautiful prayer. I think I've captured it on a note somewhere in here. He's praying this beautiful prayer. He says, what shall I render, there it is, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? In other words, Lord, you've given me so much, right? You've given, you've lavished upon me. What could I possibly, how could I possibly respond to all that you've given me? And here's his answer. In Psalm 116, 13, he says, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I love this. In other words, I have so much because of God's grace. What's my response in this moment? I'm gonna lift up my empty cup to you, God, and say, more, give me more. I want more of you. Fill me up, Lord, please, right? I'm taking, like, I know I'm empty. I know I'm needy. I wanna get myself in that position. Like, if I, this is, this is it's such a beautiful picture of the heart of prayer. What prayer is, is coming to God in this, this posture of dependence, saying, Lord, fill me up. I'm ready. My cup is empty. You've given me so much already. I'm here. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna get more of you. And that's kind of, in, a, in a sense, this is what the disciples are doing. This is what the, the men and women, these 120 that are gathered here, are doing. They're, they're getting themselves in this position. Get on your mark. And, and maybe I think maybe there's something for us in this too. Because a lot of us, we will, we will, we will respond to a situation. Something happens. Church leadership changes. Job changes. Income changes. Family situation changes. And we will, we will scramble the jets. We will do something. We'll get stuff in place. And then we'll say, all right, Lord, would you please bless what we're about to do? Would you please be with us as we fix this problem? Right, and we've, just, we've got that order backwards. But I love that this is here for us, that, that Luke is wise enough to slow down the narrative and say, before go comes on your mark, get set. So let's look at get set. This is point number two, or, or section number two, get set. Look what happens next. In verse 15, he says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Which, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, we read that Jesus appeared to over 500 at one point. This is probably not all of the disciples of Jesus, but those who were in Jerusalem or who could make it to Jerusalem at this particular point, take off from work or whatever, and could be there present in this moment. And certainly the twelve. Verse 16, brothers, he says, brothers, or brothers and sisters. The scripture, and listen to the forcefulness of this language. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now notice Peter's affirmation of the authority of the Old Testament as God's inspired word. The Holy, these are the, like the Holy Spirit said this. Through the mouth of David, yes, but the Holy Spirit said this, right? This is really important. And he quotes two Psalms and he says, these are the words of the Holy Spirit through his servant David. Verse 17, for, for he, Judas, was numbered among us 
and was allotted his share in this ministry. And now Luke is about to, he breaks away into this side note of historical, kind of historical accuracy or historical commentary where Luke says this. Now this man, verse 18, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Parents, I'm sorry if you're here with kids. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their language Akeldama, which is field of blood. Now some of you might say, wait, didn't Judas, I thought Judas hung himself. That's not what it says here. And he did. Luke is simply adding some complimentary, not conflicting, but complimentary details to what Matthew says in the end of his gospel um, that, that Matthew didn't capture. So Judas, he got 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. And that was prophesied in Zechariah 11, a thousand years ago. Which, which, if you think just for a moment, let your heart go here for just this moment. How comforting must it have been to Peter and the disciples at this moment to realize this wretched thing that just happened, this is no surprise to God. It was written about in the Psalms. It was prophesied in Zechariah. God is all over this. This this was no surprise to him, right? He wasn't caught with his eyes wide open or, you know, or, or like kind of shaking his head. Sometimes when we are kind of in the throes of life or in the middle of a situation or in, the, in a transition, a season, we can think, man, how, how, did we, how did we get here? We might be confused. We might be distraught. But what comfort there is to know that this was never... This was always, ever, a part of God's plan. This was never a surprise to God. His absolute sovereignty is in full display right here in this moment. That the worst betrayal in, ever in human history, even that, was exactly part of God's plan and playing right into what God wanted to accomplish. So for, for some of you who may feel like you're in a relationship that's gone off the rails, or you're in, you feel betrayed by a friend, or you feel let down by somebody in your life. This is, it is, it is, there's great comfort here for us. This is no, there's no surprise for God. It, it leans our hearts into his sovereignty and finds our comfort there. But anyway, here, here, so here we go. So let me, let me take a moment here because he says, in verse 20, he says, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Two different Psalms that Peter's reading. He's probably, I mean, they're, 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 they're spending the week, they're spending this time praying, studying, meditating. They, they as uh, men who grew up in the Hebrew tradition back in that time, they sung the Psalms. Every time they would go to Passover, every time they would celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, they would sing the Psalter. They would sing the Psalms. So these are songs that were in their mind all the time already. He's, he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's meditating and praying, and he's, he's making these connections, right? And so then what does he do? He stands up and he says, we gotta obey what God's word tells us, that we, the things that we've been saying, the things that we've been reading, the, the truths that we've been meditating on, we, now we, get, we gotta put this into action. So let me just sit here for a moment, and because this is significant. 
one of the questions I would ask would, would be, why are we doing this right now, right? Like, why is Peter bringing, of all the things, why is Peter bringing this up? Judas is gone, right? He's gone. Let it be, right? It was, it was hard enough already to be betrayed by one of our buddies. I mean, nobody knew that Judas was, he didn't have red eyes, right? Like, at, at the table, when they were, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, all of them said, is it, is it, is it me? All of them wondered. Nobody thought that it was going to be, nobody knew, nobody suspected, right? He was one of them. He was one of their buddies, and he's betrayed them. This is painful for them. In a way, you'd think, just, hey, let's just, just leave it, Peter. Let's just go back to praying and move on, right? Why can't we go from verse 14 and skip to chapter 2? We're about to be given power from on high, right? We, we, we will have the Holy Spirit. We don't need one more guy, we're gonna have him. Why do we need this guy, whoever we're gonna elect now, who, by the way, is never gonna be mentioned again in the rest of the Bible? Why do we even need him? Why are we doing this right now? I would say this is significant because it's, it's in here because Peter, it's in this passage because Peter, prompted by the words of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, knows that. He knows that before go comes on your mark, get set. And he's doing everything he can as a leader in that community to make sure that they are set. And he's reading God's word, he's praying, meditating on scripture. He sees these, he makes these connections and he says, guys, we're not set. We are not ready. Right, there are 11 of us. Scripture says, let another take his office, which literally, this is literally an official position as an apostle, Jesus himself taught them, if you go back to Matthew chapter 19, in the new world, says Jesus, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you 12 who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the number 12 is in his mind. The number 12 is significant because Jesus was doing a new work. He's forming a new people. He's, so, so you think of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel, who's now betraying their, the Messiah came to Israel. Israel rejects the Messiah. Jesus is saying, okay, there's a new, crea- there's a new people, a new community that I'm creating. I'm reorganizing and I need these new 12. And Peter's making these connections. And he's saying, we're not set. We're not ready. It's, the, the gospel is supposed to come from Israel to the world. Israel is supposed to be this blessing. Israel isn't yet established. The heads of Israel are incomplete. There's 11 of us. There needs to be 12. And he says, verse 16, the force of this language, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And then if you skip your eyes down to verse 22, one of these men must become a witness. On your mark, get set. So let's keep reading. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there's another question for us. Why why this qualification? Why, like Judas, so Judas must be replaced, but not merely replaced, but replaced by a man who very specifically had to be present. 
from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, from the baptism of John all the way through to the ascension. Why? Why? Here's the answer. Here's my answer. And, I, and it has a very direct application to us here at CBC. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was promised in verses four and five, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is promised in verse eight, the, the clothing with power from on high, which is promised in Luke chapter 24, 49, the fulfillment of all that, and all that was about to come on these apostles. This text makes clear that the coming of the Holy Spirit with that kind of power was never intended to replace the actual working knowledge of the real man, Jesus Christ, and his actual life and his actual teachings. In other words, and so I hope you hear what I'm saying, the the awesome power that's about to come upon them, the awesome power that you and I are filled with as believers in Christ does not replace a knowledge of God's word. Right? Some some of us, and I say this because some some of us, we, we love being close to the Lord, right? We love our times of prayer. We love our times of worship. But we don't know Scripture, and, and we have this half-baked idea of what it means to be a ready witness who is, who is on your mark, get set, ready to go. And we're not, we're not equipped. And if you wanna be a part of this mission, I want you to be a part of this mission. I think Jesus wants you to be, I know he wants you to be a part of this mission. It's not enough to say, I just wanna tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna be close to him. I'm gonna be worshiping him. I don't, like, I, don't have, like, I don't really have a sharp mind. I don't know theology. Theology is not my thing or the Bible's not my thing. I don't like to read. I'm not really a big reader. So I'll leave that for other people. But, but me, I'm just gonna, I love being with him. I love spending time with him. I love being filled with him. I don't know where you're getting that picture. That is not a biblical picture of what it means to be a witness for Christ, to be a disciple of his. And I think it's pretty powerful that they say, this man who's gonna replace this Matthias, this, this, sorry, I'm just skipping ahead. This man who's gonna replace Judas, there's a qualification here. And I think it's significant. I think it, it, it very much fits into this whole idea of on your mark, get set. They're wondering who of these people, who's on their mark? Who is set? So, Verse 23, they put two forward. They put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. And they said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. This is a, it's a great example of combining a God-given wisdom while deferring to God's ultimate sovereignty at the same time that you kind of see these both here. And they looked, they looked to see who was qualified. They narrowed it down to those and then they asked the Lord. And I love the language, right? They acknowledge, Jesus, this is your choice. And, and in fact, they've, they've admitted you've already chosen. Right, which is kind of a cool thought that for the last few years, Jesus has been walking around knowing you're number 12. I'm not gonna tell you yet, but you're number 12 and you're sticking with me, right? They, and so they acknowledge, this is, his, this is his choice. Show us which one of these you have, past tense, already 
which one of these two you have already chosen. The choice has been made. Now they're waiting to see. And so, verse 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So, a lot, so what it means to cast, casting lots in those days, it was a very common way to, to make certain crucial decisions, uh, or even certain common decisions, casting lots, and we see it a couple of times in the, in the, the Gospels. By the way, this is helpful to, for us to acknowledge. We, casting lots was a common practice all throughout ancient Israel. And then this is the last time it ever happens. Once the Holy Spirit comes, never again do we see this practice. So if you're asking, like, oh, can I do this? Like, can I, can I make, like, what if I make a significant, I, well, like, do I go to this job or that job? Can I flip a coin? Can I walk up to a young woman and say, hey, you want to flip a coin? You want to get married? Flip a coin? Like, this is not, like, this is, this is not a, a way that we make decisions today because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the wisdom of God, the counsel of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit. But they, ca- they cast lots for them. The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, they are on their mark. Now, they are set. You know, we, as a culture, just as we hate to wait. We hate that in-between, right? We hate that, that, that feeling of being unresolved and just kind of hanging in that middle space. We don't like it by nature. And I think as Americans, as Westerners, we especially don't like it. There's a lot of waiting in the Bible. There's a lot of waiting in the Bible. You think of David, who was anointed king of Israel and then waited another 14 years before that crown sat on his head. You think of Abraham and Sarah, who were promised a child that would change the world and bless the world. And they waited another 25 years until the fulfillment of that promise. And, and, and some of us, some of you, are in seasons of waiting right now. You might be waiting. Maybe some of you are waiting for a spouse. Right? We joked about it earlier, but maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe you're, maybe you're in that place where you're like, Lord, I'd, I'm getting, like, I'm looking for the one. Like, maybe, maybe it's your job, your ministry at this moment to, to get on your mark and get set. Maybe some of you are waiting for God's direction in your life. I don't know what to do with my life. I've got this career ahead of me. I don't wanna, I don't wanna commit to something if I'm not quite sure. Maybe some of you are waiting for kids. You're struggling with infertility. Some of you are waiting for your spouse to change. And you feel like it's, you've been praying and praying and you're waiting. Some of you are waiting for a, for a promotion at work, something you've been working hard toward and you're just, you're, just stuck and you're waiting. There's a lot of waiting in life. I think this passage compels us to, to take advantage. Don't pass over. Don't skip over these middle sections of life where we're caught in that in-between. But instead, follow Luke, follow Christ, right? And before 
before go comes on your mark, get set. And so in this time, in this season of waiting, ask, Lord, what it is, like, what is it? What is that simple obedience that I can follow you in? How can I be committing myself to prayer and preparing my heart and getting my empty cup under that flowing fountain of your grace? And how can I equip myself? How can I study up? How can I get set for what it is that you're about to do? Be obedient in every way you know how. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, we praise you and thank you for these seemingly random examples of these, like, these little in-between moments in Scripture. I know, in my head, I know that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for training, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But sometimes, I confess, there are, there are passages that, that don't seem so much. I'm thankful for this passage and the way that it applies to our very particular situation, even here at CBC, as we wait. We're in a season. We're in, a, we're in the in-between right now. And it doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do. It means that there's so much we can do. That we would be obedient in every way we know how. That we would not uh, underestimate the power of simple obedience. That we would commit ourselves to prayer and the unity of prayer. That we would study up sharpen up and get ready to be used by you. And I ask this, would this be true of us as a family? I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.